0: Religion, money, sex, and politics. Well, what could be more interesting than that? Those are all the things um, that I was not allowed to talk about at as a child. It was considered, you know, you you weren't allowed to talk about this, eh? and you weren't allowed to talk about food either. They were considered rather vulgar, Um, and they are the most interesting things.
1: Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast. In this episode, I will be talking politics, sex, money and religion with Prue Leith. Largely by virtue of her role as a judge on the Great British Bake Off, Prue, now 83 and a South African by birth, is something of a national treasure. But her achievements go way above and beyond bunting and icing. A renowned restaurateur and founder of Leith's Cookery School, she's also a successful entrepreneur and businesswoman the author of eight novels and counting, and an active campaigner on issues around food, education, and most recently, assisted dying. As busy, if not busier than someone a quarter of her age, Prue was unable to meet face to face, but I couldn't turn down the opportunity of talking to her, so the interview was conducted over Zoom. The sound quality may have been slightly compromised, but her charm and vigour certainly weren't. Half-heartedness just doesn't cut it in life, she says. We can all start something, but it's the keeping it going that matters. I hope you enjoy listening. It would be good to start with politics, because I know that your mum uh, was very politically active, is that right?
0: No, my my mum was not politically active in in the sense that she belonged to a political party or campaigned or anything. But what she did do with a group of other women, white women, because of course there would be no black members allowed because the whole thing about a party was black and white people were not, not allowed to mix. but um, she and another bunch of liberal-minded women set up a thing called the um, the black sash, and they would wear a black sash on their clothes and they would go and stand on the town hall steps and protest about it apartheid and have eggs thrown at them. I remember her coming home with egg yolk all <laughs> <laughs> over ja- her black jacket. And, um, and, but her main um, area of objection was that being an actress and an empresario and producer, she was really frustrated that she wasn't allowed to have mixed audiences. And the apartheid rules allowed black people to attend a play but they would have to be an all-black audience. Well, since the since black people were not educated by and large up, up over the age of ten, because the regime wanted a class of workers, not intelligentsia, um, they they would not have been the audience that would be likely to want to go to Shaw or Shakespeare or all the great British playwrights, who of course were what my mother was concerned with. So she would never have got more than ten black people in a black audience, which would have been uneconomic for everybody. So she wanted black people to be allowed to come to the audience to to the theatre, and also you she couldn't cast Othello with a, with a black man. She had to have a white man blacked up. Um, and there were some fantastically good black actors um, who you know once um, apart you know they either left South Africa and went off and became. They're famous, or um, or they had to wait till the ANC got into power and they were allowed to, and a party was bullet.
1: And was the cause something then that you were infused with yourself?
0: Not really, no, I was a typical um, South African young woman. Um, you know, I knew my parents were very liberal, I think I was you know we had we had black servants and i was absolutely devoted to my nanny and and we were, we had sort of really good friendly relations but they were still employer um servant relations you know i never went to their houses and, um you know, they had rooms at the back of our our house you know sort of little compound for the servants and they were they were respectable living quarters um and i suppose by by the impoverished standards of most black people, they were luxurious, but they were certainly nothing like as nice as ours. And it never, that never seemed to me odd. It never, I, I never questioned that when I was young, when I was a child, I never questioned that my nanny had to sit at the back of the bus <laughs> and I had to sit at the front of the bus. Or that, you know, if I walked along the pavement with a lot of giggling school friends, Um, a venerable black man would get off the pavement, walk in the gutter, let us pass. Mm. All these things only hit me when I had been abroad and went back and realised what kind of a society I'd lived in perfectly and happily.
1: You have become, I believe, very politically engaged. You've thrown yourself actively into the debate about education, food in schools assisted dying, you're very um, engaged politically, is that fair to say?
0: Yes, I I am, but but not party politically, interestingly. I mean, I've voted for all spectrums of the political um, rainbow um, in my time. Um, Mostly I've, I've voted in my long life for the woolly middle, in the woolly liberal middle, you know, SDP and liberals and so on, all of whom have achieved absolutely nothing and are disappearing so fast they might as well not exist. I've never been party political very, very much. Of course, I have, a, I have a Tory MP son, so people always assume that I'm Tory. And I have this posh voice, and I live in, a, I live in the Cotswolds, and a lot of my friends definitely are Tory. <laughs> so, so I can see why I'm just assumed to be Tory. A rich Tory bitch is what um, Twitter call me quite often. The reason I think you think of of me as political is because it's not so much political as that I'm a kind of interfering, one of those interfering women who always want to fix things. When I would be walking down the street with my children when they were little, (coughs) um, if I saw a plastic bag blowing on the pavement, you know, I'd go and pick it up. I once heard the wife of the chairman of British Rail, <clears throat> um being asked what she felt when she went into a train lavatory and it was dirty and there was new paper. What do you feel, baby Parker? They said. What do you do? And she said, Well I clean it up, of course. And I recognise myself in that. I mean I'm forever <laughs> tidying up train lavatories. <laughs> It's that thing of seeing a gap and thinking, um, that could be fixed. I know how to fix that. Well, if I know how to fix that, I would fix it, or at least try. And so I think I was, you know, at one point in my life, I was chairman of the Royal Society of Arts, the RSA. And I don't know if you know much about the RSA, but it is my model organization because it's a sort of think-and-do tactic. Yes, it's a think tank. It has lots of clever people writing clever reports. But the idea is never to write a report which will gather dust on the shelf. It's to write a report that can start a little revolution, that can fix a problem. And so in, in its time, the RSA has done all sorts of things. It's been the um, <clears throat> progenitor, I think, perhaps that's not quite that word, but the founder, one of the founders of sorts Sort of organizations like the um, London School of Economics, the National Trust, the Lifeboat Association, and all of these things would have been because members of the RSA thought there's a problem. People are drowning at sea. We need to do something about it. There's a, there's a problem here. We are destroying our our heritage. We better set up a national trust. And, and I have much of that spirit in me. That If you think something's wrong, you should... And help it fix it. And I love being chairman of the RSA simply because of that. We did lots of things. That We started, for example, a, a, a scheme to um, teach children to cook at school, and we got it funded by Waitrose. And it ended up a really successful charity driving buses all around London, which turned into, and all around the country, which turned into teaching kitchens. And we taught not just the children, but the teachers, most teachers. school. That was called Focus on Food, and I was really proud of that. And that just came out of asking our members, what's wrong? You know, I gave a lecture about food, and then we got a whole lot of people came around and said, well, let's do something about
1: it. It's wonderful, your proactive spirit. Not everybody has it.
0: Well, I think I'm very energetic. I think a lot of people don't do stuff, although they'd like to, but they just don't have the energy. And I have too much energy, which is very tiring for everybody around me. And my children sometimes say, Mum, you are so tiring. Um, So I can see that's not not all all a good thing. But, yeah, I mean, I do have a lot of energy. And, of course, I enjoy it. And I'm a tremendous egotist anyway, so I like... um, I like to be the one that gets in there and stirs the pot.
1: I I cried reading the letter that you're dad wrote to your mum before before his operation um for a cancer that eventually killed him but i did wonder what your view of sex and relationships was growing up if you were the child of a love story which you obviously were
0: i obviously was and i had i mean i do remember my father saying to me that that um, it was very interesting because he said um that he was of that generation that believed that if women had sex before they, before marriage, they were traps and nobody would ever have any respect for them ever again. And if you, if you slept with a man, he would leave you the next morning and he would have no respect for you. And I truly believed for this, and so that made me feel incredibly guilty, as of course I obey any of their rules, but I always felt that I was a tramp, And um, And I knew that they, I mean, it really was, I never, ever heard my parents quarrel. Presumably they must have. Um, But I never heard them quarrel. And so I did grow up with this, you know. And it was interesting because I always knew that their relationship, to they were more important to each other than we were. We were a little band, my two brothers and me. And we were definitely the, the bit part players in this family. I mean, we all adored my parents. Um, but their love for each other was definitely I feel, felt. I we didn't feel neglected ever. We felt very loved. It's, we knew that that was the central thing to both of them, without them ever saying it. was It was really good. And what was quite funny is when I read my mother's diaries, thinking of my father giving me this lecture about. You know, um, women who made love before they were married to tramps. Um, I read my mother's diaries and she had had an affair before she met mine. <laughs> and that was really shocked me. I couldn't believe it because, you know, but I, my mother had never said this to me, but my father had said that.
1: You were quite sexually enthusiastic from quite a young age. I was. I was. I mean, I. I I mean, as soon as I
0: got over horses, I was into boys, you know, about 15. I was. I remember thinking if I have 10 lovers before I'm married, that is absolutely the (laughs) limit. If you have more than 10, you're just a trollop.
1: But 10 was okay. 10 was okay. I think I had 11 (laughs) in the end. I know you've spoken about it before, but you had a long adulterous relationship with the man you ended up marrying. How do you view your adultery now?
0: Well, the interesting thing is I still don't think it's the right thing to do. I I don't approve of adultery. I feel really upset when my girlfriend's husband cheat on them or I hear of somebody who's having an affair with somebody else. I just think, oh, it's so unfair and so on. But the fact is... And, you know, it's such an old age excuse, and, you know, it, it sounds like such a well-worn cliche, but I could no more have not fallen in love with rain. I mean, I, d- I would never have had the willpower to um, resist such an overpowering um, um, love. And it was extraordinary. And, you know, I'd have done anything for him. And, and I and I was right, he was, you know, for both of us, it was the most important things of our lives. And yes, it was particularly painful because Ren's wife was my mother's best friend. So she was, I suppose, 18 or 20 years older than him. And he was the same age. Older than me, and but most um, painfully, she was my. She was like a mum to me, and she she. When when I came to England, work in England, I stayed with them, with Rain and his wife Nan, and Nan was absolutely wonderful. She was. She could not have been kinder, and and so I was like a. And the, the betrayal and the um, and the deceit and all the rest it seems to be amazing that I could do it And but I so love Rain and I so actually loved Nan that, and the one thing we were both totally agreed on was that I, we weren't going to get married and that we, he would not leave Nan and I didn't want him to leave now. I didn't want Want to upset that family? My best friend was his daughter. You yeah. know, it's all a bit too incestuous and, and difficult to explain. But I never once asked him to leave, man. And in fact, in the end, I left him because when I when I turned thirty-four, the desire to have a baby hit me like a tidal wave. I mean, I had always been saying to myself, I don't want children, I'm very happy, and I've got rain, and and it's perfect. I'm I'm building up my business. It's actually fine that we're not together all the time because, you know, I'm I'm working really hard, and it means that he can, you know, he's not hurting now. But you know what? The war came unraveled because I then... When I was 34, I suddenly realized that I, I wanted to have a baby more than anything. So I left, I left Rain. It didn't work. I ran away with somebody I thought would, the, the easiest way to get away from Rain would be to get hooked up with somebody else. And I, and so I, I did. Anyhow, that, it didn't work because he'd run away from his wife. I'd run away from Rain. Neither of us were happy and we both wanted to go back to where we were. But, of course, it was still hugely hurtful for Nan. Absolutely awful for Nan. But both of them were wonderful people, and they just decided that they were not going to let this catastrophe, from their point of view, absolute wonder for mine, of him leaving Nan and marrying me, Um, they were not going to let it ruin everything. And so Nan just said to her children, we're all going to behave properly, then nobody's going to fall out. Um, Rain is still rain, Peru is still Peru. By then we had our house in the country. Um, And after a while we had our house in the country. And Anne used to come down many weekends and stay with us and have Christmas with us and Easter with us and see the family all the time.
1: Ten years after rain died, which must have been beyond devastating he died in 2002 i think and 10 years after that you you remarried you married your current husband john
0: yes
1: and what i'd love to know from you is how how, at its best does a good marriage look
0: well i absolutely i mean john could not be more different from rain john is very sensible and 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 gregarious and so unlike Rain, in the sense that Rain never liked, never, you know, he was practically reclusive. With, and, and, and John has been, I mean, he has saved my life, really, because I don't think I think I need somebody to like. You know, I'm doing this one-woman show at the moment. Mm. And we have questions after the interview. And one of the questions inevitable. inevitably, is um about falling in love at 70. you fell in love in 70 how does that feel well to be honest it feels exactly like falling in love at 17. you know you have the same um heartbanging and concern that you know can i ring him up you know dare i text him does he really fancy me am i imagining it you know all that stuff at the beginning. Nothing changes just because you're old. <laughs> so, so I'm a great advocate for geriatric love. I think it's good be. The value of money. Well, I think it's naive and ridiculous to to think it's not important. I mean, you talk to anybody who has no money, and, and it dominates their life. Of course, it does. And if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, so true poverty is appalling. Um, I think I've always been so lucky because I came from a a well-to-do. South African family. My mother was a successful um, theatre person. My dad was a director, a subsidiary of ICI, which was a huge company at the time. So we lived in a very nice house and we went to private school and we lived in a nice area of Johannesburg. I never went as a child into um, one of the South African the falling townships. Um, so I had I just... Although I theoretically knew that there were lots of poor people, I'd never seen slums. It's extraordinary how you can live in a country and not be aware. Well. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. No, I, did, I don't know what you wanted to say about money. Obviously, money is important. I don't think... I don't think I would ever do it. I've had the luxury because I... am. Um, I've always had... Uh, my parents helped me in the beginning. I was given um help when I my mother helped me when I opened my restaurant, she put eleven thousand pounds into my restaurant. And when I first um started my business, um I had a, an allowance from my parents of you know, ten pounds a week or something, which is not today would probably be a thousand pounds a week for them. Oh, £500 a week. Um so I always had help and but I've always been quite careful with money. I've never, I've never lived above my income, and, and I've been luckily successful with my businesses. So I've always managed to live within my income. But now I have huge income. In
1: and has your career, have your career choices been motivated by money? I mean, do you choose with your heart, and then money's a a byproduct? I, I love
0: business. I absolutely enjoy it. I actually, I'm a real trader. The reason I have a glasses range and a necklace range, you know, is because I actually love trade. I like love making stuff, and I love designing things, and I love people buying them. You know, it just gives me huge pleasure. But the um, so the business, I, I I've always been saying to students, don't don't be scornful of profit. Don't you know? I went to talk to a lot of art students at Goldsmiths College once years ago, and I met this wall of people saying art for art's sake. And um, because I was saying that I thought the college should teach them marketing skills, that it's no good being the best silversmith or the best um, um, painter or the best sculptor in the world if nobody's going to buy your work. The only way you can go on making beautiful artwork is by selling some of it and uh, uh, telling them how important money is. And I've never taken a job just because the money is good. However, I don't think I would have done, let's say, Bake Off if I was supposed to do it for free. And you know what? I am so grateful to it because for an awful lot of the things that I can do now, um, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have ever got a one-woman show off the ground, would I, if it wasn't for Bake Because every single one of those people who buy tickets to see me um, come because of Bake I mean, they, they, they like me. So they come because they like me, and they like me because they like Bake I do think that happiness makes a huge difference to one's energy levels um, so and John is really encouraging you know he's always up for anything, and that's a, extraordinary i mean he's come with me we've done thirty three of these one woman shows, and he's come to everyone i mean he doesn't he often sits at the back and reads his Kindle. I expect watch to take the same thing, but he's always there you know. And he, He calls himself my bag bag carrier, but he's far more than just a bag carrier. I mean, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't for him, because it wouldn't be any fun. It wouldn't be so much fun. It would be quite a bit of fun, but I don't think I would have done it if he wasn't coming with me. So that's terrific. I'm really lucky with that.
1: believe in god
0: it's a wonderful fairy tale if i have a religion at all it's that i really believe in in, in, in innate kindness and goodness of human beings and that, that um, i don't think that, um, christians or buddhists or you know, muslims have some kind of monopoly on goodness or or on morality there are lots of very good people who don't believe in God. You know, Jesus doesn't have some kind of monopoly on goodness.
1: Does your goodness, because you are obviously a very good person and you're very caring and you do an awful lot for other people, does it, um, has fame made any difference to that? Do you have to concentrate on staying well behaved? Yeah. I don't think I've ever changed. I'm, you know,
0: it's interesting that people often say the good, if they like me on television or they like me on my one-on-one show or they like what I write, they will often say, You are so consistent. You're always just you. And I think I don't know how to be anything else than just me. Um, and I do realize that sometimes that's irritating. Too talkable, bit, a bit too bossy, a bit too um, cavalier. <laughs> you know, but I, um, but I, I don't know what comes. from I think that you cannot be happy if you, because I think that happiness is the ultimate goal. Um, I don't think you can be happy if it's if if what you are enjoying is at the expense of somebody else. If you um, if you get your kicks from being um gram and um, you know beaverish and behaving um badly to other people so that you feel special. Well that can't make you happy. That that's that's a kind of salve that is totally unsatisfactory. Um I mean everybody wants to be loved and Nobody loves a deed. Thank you.
1: You've said before that your main concern is not having enough life left to live. Do you mind getting older?
0: Um, no, I don't actually mind getting older. I mean, I'm I'm having a great old age. You know, I, I I'm fairly healthy, and uh, but I would like longer because I I still would like to do a lot more things. But I don't want to live. Um, I don't want to. I, well, you know, even how I feel about euthanasia and I don't want to live. Um, it, it would seem awful pity to have had such a lovely life as I have, with almost everything has been gone right for me, almost everything, um, and then have to spend weeks or months or years in pain and, and suffering. I'd rather end it. You know, although I'd love to live for a very long time, I don't want to live in sickness.
1: At the end of the day, what really matters in this life?
0: Love. Love. And it, can, it doesn't have to be, you know, love, of, love of your husband or love, love your children, but you have to love something. It could be, it could be, um, oh, I don't know, rare orchids or your spaniel. You must have something to, come, to use that wonderful thing, which is a sort of. If you if you really love something or someone, um, it makes you happier and makes everybody around you happier. I, I think love. Like, re to say, and I'm sure that's right.
1: Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you're enjoying the series and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. In the next episode, I'll be talking to the legendary travel writer Colin Thubron about self-sufficiency, wisdom and action, and tying up life's loose ends. In the meantime, My thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound production and original score. Until next time, goodbye.